Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Harbin here with you. There is so much going on in the news. It turns out this is the top story right now in the Axios newsletter, Axios.com. Thousands of migrant youth allegedly suffered sexual abuse in U.S. custody. Thousands. They've got it broken down by month, by year, by perpetrator all these kinds of things. We have all talked about how terrible it is that children are being torn away from their parents, the trauma that they're suffering. And now we find that there are literally thousands of allegations of sexual abuse. This is in addition to physical abuse and the obvious psychological and emotional abuse of simply being torn from their parents. This is what Donald Trump and Kristen Nelson, you know, the head of DHS, and John Kelly and Mike Pence have brought to us with the complicity of all the Republicans in Congress. This is insane. Meanwhile, how do these guys stay in office? How do they even get in office? Dark money. Every time some wimpy politician or some self-appointed media pundit says, you know, we can't pay for Medicare for all. How are you going to pay for free college? How are we going to pay for better wages? Know that the reason why they're saying that is really simple. Billions, literally billions of dollars in dark, untraceable cash being poured from billionaires and big corporations into the pockets of politicians, media figures, and so-called think tanks that are basically PR organizations for a particular corporate point of view. The Supreme Court overturned laws against this back in 1976 in the Buckley case when they legalized this kind of corruption, put it on steroids in 2010 with Citizens United leading us straight, but back in 76, that decision, and then the, and then the uh, First National Bank versus Bilotti in 78, those decisions led us straight into the swamp of the so-called Reagan revolution, taking control of America away from voters and putting it into the hands of lobbyists, big corporations, and multimillionaire politicians like Mitch McConnell. We know now from uh, Page and Gillen's study at, uh, I believe it was Columbia, might have been Northwestern, but, well, you know, whatever. You can easily find it. It's a two-year-old study, as I recall. 
where they found that if you look at the wishes of the average electorate, the bottom 90% of Americans, if you look at what they want, the political outcomes that they want, what are the things, what are their priorities? They are as likely to be enacted into law as random noise. In other words, the bottom 90% of us are literally completely ignored by the political class. Now, I don't know how you call that a democracy. Whereas the desires of the top 10% are measurably more likely to go into effect and the desires of the top 0.01% are aggressively being put into law, which is why their wealth is just exploding. Whereas even the top 1%, their wealth is not exploding as fast as the top 1,100th of 1%. We're in an oligarchy. And why? The Supreme Court gave it to us. The Supreme Court said, oh yeah, corruption's just fine. You know, money's the same thing as free speech. And guess what? An entire political party, the Republican Party, said, cool, we'll take that. And, you know, a chunk of the Democratic Party did too, you know, to be candid. And, you know, the good news is the Democratic Party is moving away from that as fast as possible. Elizabeth Warren, for example, just announced she's not even going to do high money fundraisers. You know, these kind of fundraisers that have long been staples of both parties where you get, you know, a, a, a candidate for president and they invite a bunch of donors and it's, you know, $50,000 plate dinner or $10,000 plate dinner. She's just not going to do those. Is she disarming herself? I don't know. The Federal Election Commission reports that over a billion dollars from secretive billionaires and corporate hands flooded into our political bloodstream just since 2016 and expect more next year. And this is why corporations get deregulation so they can increase pollution and they can rip you off with loans and things while suicide and drug addiction rates are exploding among working people, particularly in red states where people are losing access to health care and they know that their kids' futures are screwed even worse than in blue states. From crumbling roads and bridges to failing schools to poisoned water supplies to explosions of cancer and chronic disease, this all goes back to the evil of dark money flowing through the veins of our political system. And it's personal. I mean, my cat Higgins was poisoned by Chinese cat food around 2007. The melamine, when you test food for protein, this chemical, which is used in making plastics, shows up as high protein. And so they were adding it to pet food and shipping it to the United States literally by the ton all over the country. Thousands of dead cats and dogs and probably hundreds of thousands of them with damaged kidneys. My cat was one of them. Democracy, our democracy is screwed because of this. Does your vote count? I mean, you know, we're now learning that one of the big voting machine companies just made a huge, you know, six-figure contribution to the Republican Party. How does your vote count when, you know, votes are being suppressed? I mean, it just, this just goes on and on and on. Over at truthout.org, Anna Masaglia right secret donor funded dark money spending reported to the federal election commission has officially exceeded 1 billion dollars according to a new analysis by the center for responsive politics and that barely begins to scratch the surface of political spending by groups that don't fully disclose their donors you know spending by groups that don't disclose their donors has exceeded 2 billion dollars just since 2006 more than half of all 2018 election spending this is just a year and a half ago was by outside groups that don't fully disclose their donors. The 2018 election cycle, more than $539 million by spending by groups that don't fully disclose their donors. This is the poison 
in the bloodstream of our body politic. You know, I can point to my cat getting sick. I can point to health crises in my own family that I believe are caused by poisons in our food supply. I look at the, you know, the student loans that my kids have and that my friends' kids have that are, in some cases, just crippling them. I mean, these are just some of the obvious things. By the way, apropos of student loans, I mentioned yesterday, I think, on the air that in Denmark, they pay you 200 bucks a month to go to school. Martin Stender tweets, hey, Tom, just a minor correction regarding stipends while studying in Denmark. It is up to $466 if you live with your parents and $938 if you live by yourself. Seriously. In Denmark, they pay you to go to school. Why? Because they know that if young people go to college, that not only do they make more money and pay more taxes, which means the money all comes back to the government in multiples, but also you know, they, they want to have a well-educated workforce and populace. I mean, that, that is necessary for democracy. So here we have this. And now, in the meantime, at the same time that Trump is putting together a climate denier task force, new research suggests that we're hitting a dangerous climate tripping point, and we're nearly there. And this is where the, the atmosphere warms to the point where what are called stratocumulus clouds, those really, really high clouds up there that reflect the sunlight back out into outer space, they just break up altogether because the atmosphere is warm. And when that happens, the temperature of the Earth will soar 8 degrees Celsius. That's 14 degrees Fahrenheit. And it has not been part of the climate models up to this point. Nobody's been able to figure out why in previous extinctions, sometimes in as few as a few hundred or a few thousand years, suddenly everything dies. Why? What's that sudden tipping point? They thought it was methane. Well, methane is a piece of it. But it looks like it's clouds. Brand new scientific information. And meanwhile, here, this guy, Bill Wayrum, right? At the EPA, he's the assistant administrator in charge of issues including climate change, smog, and power plants, mercury pollution. Who is he? He's a former partner of a company that was paid $8.2 million just in 2017 by 25 power companies and six industry trade groups, including Duke Energy, Southern Company, and AEP. The nation's biggest coal-burning power companies paid a top lobbying firm millions of dollars to fight Obama-era environmental rules. And now one of, their fir- one of that firm's partners, this guy Bill Wayrum, is at the EPA making these decisions. Kathleen Clark, law professor at Washington University in St. Louis, says the scandal here is that this is legal. Meanwhile, who's refusing to back the Green New Deal? As we're learning this, once again, we get back to this dark money thing. The 12 senators co-sponsoring the Green New Deal have accepted about a million bucks from people who work in coal, oil, gas industries. Okay, a million bucks. The 88 senators who said, no, we're not going to support the Green New Deal, they have taken in close to $59 million, about $670,000 per person opposed to the Green New Deal, seven times what the average sponsor took in. I mean, this is how bad it is. Meanwhile, Donald Trump just sent out the most amazing, lying, I don't know any other word for it than that, the most amazing, lying email. It's mind-boggling. So how have you been affected by corporate corruption or by the loss of democracy or by, I I mean, you know, this is this is why Americans don't have health care. It's why we have medical bankruptcies in this country. Six hundred thousand a year and no other developed country in the world has any. 
This is the Tom Hartman Program. It's why our schools are crumbling. It's why our roads are filled with potholes. How is this affecting you? Everyone's talking about the decline in stock values over the last few months. If you've been listening to Lynette Zhang's YouTube show, you probably aren't surprised by the fall. Her fact-based research on markets, currencies, and economics is second to none. And her presentations have pointed to most every major downfall we've recently seen in the U.S. economy. Her video titled Just Before the Crash showed people the exact patterns to look out for and now has over 210,000 views and counting. Lynette Zhang has been on my show and works with my friends at ITM Trading. I highly recommend looking them up as they are pioneers in creating wealth protection strategies with gold and silver. If you're a strategic investor looking to protect your wealth or just hedge against the most volatile markets since 2007, then call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Ask for their free gold protection guide and join the top 1% who are now accumulating very specific types, dates, and qualities of physical gold and silver. Call 1-888-OWN-GOLD. That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. Tom Harvin here with you. And a lot of topics on the board here. Let's start with Matt in Napa, California, listening on AM 910 Real Talk out of San Francisco. Hey, Matt, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, just kind of wanted to talk about censorship in America, uh, and particularly, I guess, how private organizations like Facebook and YouTube are now able to take down a wide variety of sites, kind of under the general rubric, I guess, of conspiracy theories. Or Well, they can do anything they want, Matt, because the First Amendment only applies to government agencies. Well, that's exactly my point. The, the, the problem that that arises is that basically... The founders, at least, wanted free speech to exist in America, and the mediums that now exist have turned into the private uh, entities for the most part. So we have the problem where free speech is being eliminated in America, whether it's legally being done so or yeah. not. It's against the principles. Yeah, of I, I, you know, I played a clip from Franklin Roosevelt on Tuesday where he said, private enterprise, in fact, has become privileged enterprise. And that's what's happened here because of the way that the Supreme Court reinterpreted the, the uh, antitrust laws in the 1970s following Robert Bork's doctrine. Um, we now have giant media corporations, including the online ones like Facebook and Google, who are just making these decisions. Google has decided, you know, we're not going to tell you about Alternet anymore, for example, Alternet.org, or a number of other good progressive websites. Yeah, and just on the vaccine issue, I know you don't really discuss it a whole lot, but here in my town of Napa, you know, we had a comment page, and I, I just tried to post CDC statistics that show that, you know, the measles were uh, 97% of the lethality of measles was eliminated before the introduction of measles vaccine, and that's considered anti-vax speech. I mean, that's a CDC statistic, so, right. uh, you know, I think the extremity of the anti-vaxes or the anti-anti-vax has gone a bit too far. Yeah. So what do you do with that, Matt? I mean, if, if you've posted some information on a public message board that's owned by a private corporation and they're offended by the content of your stuff, and it's not, you know, hate speech, it's CDC statistics in this case, what do you think should have happened? How do you think this should be adjudicated, for lack of a better word? How do we work this out? Well, my approach would be for communities to get together to organize best as they can on their own platforms that can't be eliminated by, you know, the larger 
Facebooks and YouTubes of the world. You know, I don't know if that's even possible at this point with the amount of control there is over the Internet. And, you know, if it comes down to it, I guess you have to go back to maybe face-to-face meetings at a community level to get your information across. Yeah. It's getting yeah. rather Orwellian. And well, in the early days of the Internet, there were, a, there were a lot of community-based forums and things like that, but they got all subsumed by Facebook. And the cool thing about Facebook is that you know, you can keep in touch with family no matter where they are. I've got, you know, cousins in northern Michigan. I have a niece who married a Hispanic guy in the United States who was not here legally, and so they had to move to Mexico. And I follow her in Mexico constantly, you know, all the time on what they're up to. I have friends all over the world that I've gotten to know over the years that, that you know, and I don't ever post on my personal Facebook account. I just, I, I'm totally creeped out by it. But there, but I have a bunch of friends who do, and, and it, you know, it, as much as I'm very, 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 very wary of and frankly disgusted by some of Facebook's business practices, we put our show on Facebook, on Facebook Live, and I use it personally. And I, you know, I, I just don't know how we disentangle ourselves from that. I don't know. It's a yeah, tough one. I'm not, I'm not saying all everything that Facebook does is bad, but in terms of political speech, I think we have to find some some alternative yeah. alternatives to it. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Spot on. Thanks a lot for the call, Matt. Great to hear from you, Jennifer in Portland, Oregon, listening on X-ray FM. Hey, Jennifer, what's on your mind today? Um, hi. Um, you know, it's important that people vote for Bernie and Elizabeth, and I just want to tell you why, and not the young upcoming Dems. Um, Bernie and, and Elizabeth are not going to be susceptible to the big corporations. They have nothing to lose. I'm afraid that all these young Dems who are coming up, they're wonderful, but I think they, they, are, they are susceptible to compromise. And, you know, Bernie and Elizabeth will have none of that. Yeah. And I love that about them. Yeah, they're not going to try to build... We can't afford to do the compromise stuff. We're done with that. Right, they're not going to try and build a personal fortune of hundreds of millions and and, and a political empire like Bill Clinton did, for example. Right. It's their job to set the stage, get everything in place, so that AOC can come up in six years. I have a feeling, though, Jennifer, that that's (laughs) probably... Yeah, there you go. That that's probably true of a much broader swath of the Democratic Party than we realize. I mean, I get it that, you know... Cory Booker took money from the pharmaceutical industry, and Kamala Harris took money and from Silicon Valley and billionaires. And the, the, those are big states, and you need a lot of money to run campaigns in big states. And it's really, really hard to get away from that. And and but but I think that the zeitgeist has changed. I think that when in 1991, when Al Fromm and Bill Clinton put together the DLC explicitly saying, you know, basically, Reagan has been successful in destroying the labor unions. We no longer have a a financial base for the Democratic Party. We've got to come up with a new one. So if we're going to have to take corporate money, let's at least take it from the corporations that are not destroying the country. Let's go to the banks. Let's go to the insurance companies. Let's go to the pharmaceutical companies. Let's go to the insurance companies. These are, quote, clean white collar industries, right? Let's, Let's talk with them and leave the Republicans to the fossil fuel industry. At that point in time, it was a survival strategy. You know, I mean, this was before the Internet. Now, this was before small dollar donations were even possible in any kind of meaningful way. But times have changed. And, you know, I'm not condemning Bill Clinton and Al Fromm for that. I think, you know, A, it was successful. It got Bill Clinton into the White House for eight years. And he did some some very good things. He did some things that I disagree with. But, you know, that's a whole other thing. But I think that as times have changed, I think that the the Democratic Party has changed. And and and. I just don't think most Democrats have an have the appetite for that kind of thing that you're concerned about. I don't, you know, even if it's 
somebody who's, quote, a centrist, you know, like Amy Klobuchar, who's openly saying, I'm one of those centrist people. I'm one of those people who's whatever you want to call it. I'm okay with that. I'm still worried that, that they are susceptible to the influence of the big corporations. And yeah. I just know that Bernie and Elizabeth are not, will not, have never been, yeah. and will do always right by the people. The thing yeah. that told me that the tide has turned was when Cory Booker, about a month or so ago, basically repudiated his association with the pharmaceutical industry, which is the wealthiest industry in the state of New Jersey, where he's the senator. So you would expect him to have a relationship with them. And he just walked mm -hmm. away from it. That impressed me. So we'll see. We'll see where it goes. Jennifer, thanks for the call. Thank you, Tom. John in San Francisco. Hey, John, thanks for listening to AM 910. What's on your mind? I'm calling because I feel as though we're losing our progressive voices. Uh, today is the last day for Norman Goldman's show. He's going off the air, which he privately financed himself for the last nine years. Last year, we, we lost Ed Schultz and Alan Combs, and then, of course, Ray Taliferro, who was a, a local out here yeah. on the West Coast. Let's make it clear. All three of those people died. Right. Well, yeah, but Norman, and, he's going and, off the air because no one will hire him on the Clear Channel and Cumulus or whatever it is. And what can we do to expand our voice? Because we really need to get the messages out in this next year as we uh, elect a new president sure. or a real president. When I was back, I was doing a local show, actually, for the company that is now iHeart, used to be Clear Channel, in Portland, and as well as doing a show on Air America, which was carried by that, that station, KPOJ, here in Portland. And when, as I recall, Mitt Romney lost, maybe a, what, whatever it was, there was an election and a bunch of Republicans lost, and Clear Channel took down a bunch of those stations, and the, the official reason that they gave was that they were not selling advertising as, as easily. And one of the things that I learned actually working in one of those clusters, you know, where we had five, as I recall, five different radio stations operating out of one building and basically one sales force that was selling all five stations. And the biggest of those stations, one was a rock and roll station, one was a talk radio station, which was the right wing one, the one that carried Rush Limbaugh. And what had happened was that the salespeople over the years had developed relationships with local business people in the communities. I mean, you know, like they go golfing with them and stuff, go to the clubs and things, the, the moose or the elks or something. <laughs> you know, it was like a kind of a conservative old boys network of salespeople and advertisers who just got together and got to know each other. And so when they opened the progressive station, the one that I was on, KPOJ, a lot of the salespeople were not interested in selling it. And or they'd go back to the people who had been buying time on the right wing station and say, hey, you should buy the left-wing station, and, the, and they'd say, hey, I'm not a left-winger, I'm a right-winger, so why would I do that? So it, it, it was a challenge. It was like a structural challenge, right? There's this structural thing that was already in place because conservative talk radio had had a 20-year head start, and as Ken Vogel pointed out, the Heritage Foundation was subsidizing Rush Limbaugh to the tune of over $9 million. You can find this on Politico from a couple of years ago. I think it was 2013. Um, Ken Vogel wrote this piece about this. Uh, Sean Hannity was getting millions of dollars in subsidies, you know, and this is all coming, you know, this is coming through Heritage and, and other right-wing uh, think tanks. There was one coming through uh, the other big Koch brothers thing, whatever it is. You know, it was like this structural thing. So the thing that you can do and that people who are listening to AM 910 in San Francisco or any of our commercial stations, because we're on commercial stations all over the country, 
that you can do to increase the viability and the survivability of progressive talk radio on these stations and perhaps grow them, you know, create some success stories and grow them so that other stations, I mean, you know, uh, iHeartRadio owns a lot of radio stations in this country and they've got us on a few, which is great, and is to support the advertisers. Call up the advertisers and say, hey, I, I, you know, I heard your ad on AM 910, and uh, I'm not ready to buy a new car or a mattress, but uh, when I am, I will come to you first because you advertised on a station that I listened to. Or I will tell my friends, when, when my friends are asking me, you know, where should I buy a new car, I'm going to tell them about your dealership. And it, you would be astonished, John, most of these companies that advertise on progressive stations or on even on conservative stations, frankly, most of these, uh, most of the station managers and most of the advertisers almost never hear from their listeners. They see the numbers in sales, but they almost never hear from their listeners. So that's the number one thing you can do, John. Uh, thank you for the call. Thanks for raising the topic. With regard to nonprofit, you know, we're also on nonprofit stations. We've taken a, a little broader perspective than Norman did, who was just on for-profit stations, and said, we're also going to be on Pacifica stations, we're also going to be on Free Speech TV, um, you know, there's a, we're also going to be on the internet, we're also going to be on YouTube, we're also going to be on Facebook Live, we're trying to figure out how to get onto Twitter and Instagram and others, we just want to be complete multi-platform. And most of those are nonprofit, and they're supported by listeners. So if you're listening to this program or any other progressive programming that is of value to you on a Pacifica station, on an independent station, on, uh, you know, whatever it may be. Support the station, right? So those are the ways that you can do that. And thank you for the call. Uh, that was a good one. Shannon in Ladera Ranch, California. We're listening to KPFK. Hey, Shannon, what's up? Hi, Tom. Thank you for all you do, first and foremost. You're welcome. Uh, two points I want to put in your brain to hear you speak about them. I'll be as quick as I can. The first one, I, I truly think that Trump isn't actually about the wall. I think the media is missing this point. He's about the power for the money. If he gets the money and to do whatever he wants with whatever money he can put his hands on that, sure. after that happens and he's allowed to do that, there's no tracing it. He can pretend he's giving it to the wall, he can give it to Russia, he can give it to... Well, look at what Bush did with, with the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. I mean, they, they gave literally billions of dollars in no-bid contracts to Dick Cheney's company, Halliburton, which made Dick, right. Dick Cheney into a multi-multi-millionaire. And, you know, his daughter is riding that fortune now into the U.S. House of Representatives and probably the Senate one day. And uh, you know, it's, like the, it's not like this is a new strategy. And they talk all about making his base happy. But I'm yeah. like, this has nothing to do with him making anybody else happy. Well, I so think I, I think the do. racist piece of it is a huge piece of it. And I think yeah. that's why I initially rolled it out. But I, I yeah. agree with you that there's something about the money. The other one, the other angle that's fascinating is he started pushing this whole steel slat thing. If you want to stop drugs from coming across the border, steel slats is not the way to do it. You can pass an envelope full of drugs right through the slats, you know, uh, you know one after another <laughs> all day long. Anyway, but going in the trucks going but, in the main port right. that got yeah, the yeah absolutely and it doesn't make any sense but the but i have read on multiple sources we've talked about it on this program we've had we actually had a, a guest on talking about this that the only company in north america that makes the kind of steel that you would use for a steel slat fence is based in canada and is majority owned by a Russian oligarch with Israeli citizenship, but a Russian oligarch. And so, you know, is Trump trying to pass money off? And I don't know if this guy's in with the Russian mob or not, but if he is, is Trump trying to pay off the Russian mob? Which raises another question. Why is Paul Manafort 
hanging on and hanging on. Uh, now that New York State has said they're going to prosecute him if Trump pardons him, he's, his goose is cooked. Is it because he thinks that the Russian mob is going to come after him or the Ukrainian mob or the, you know, fill in the blank mob that he's been dealing with so many mobsters in so many countries all over the world? Maybe Trump himself is afraid of these people, Shannon. And thank you for the call. Jason in Washington, Michigan. Hey, Jason, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I'm a staunch union member, mm-hmm. and I just wanted to tell Jason, you. Jason, I, quick question. When did we... I'm, I'm sorry, forgive my interrupting, but uh, I grew up in Michigan. I've traveled all over Michigan. I lived in Michigan until I was 27 years old, and I have never been to Washington, Michigan. Where are you? It's right north, about 20 minutes if you're going north. by War- If you know where Warren, Michigan is, I do? it's about 20 minutes north. Okay, must be a small town. It's a small town, little town. It's like a orchards and farmland and combination of oh, everything. Oh, sweet, so, sweet. Yeah, that's um, a nice part of the state. Now, I just, to, why I you just call one them? of my... One of my first memories as a kid is in 1980, and I always talk about Reagan, and I can remember my grandparents, they were all union members, all UAW. My parents are UAW members. I'm a union member. And in our neighborhood, probably about 70 to 80% of the families, probably 100 families in the neighborhood, and we lived in Warren, there was probably at least 60 or 70% of the people voted for Reagan. I can remember right. my grandfather almost getting in a fist fight with his neighbor about it. Yeah. Well, you'll recall PATCO, Professional Air Traffic Controllers Organization, the Union of Air Traffic Controllers, endorsed Reagan because he promised them that if they endorsed him, he would support their strike. And then, of course, he destroyed the I, union. A number of unions, I, I believe the, uh, the, I could be wrong about the steel workers. Actually, I don't even want to, I, I don't even want to guess, but I, there were a number of unions yeah. that actually supported Reagan because he was doing the whole tough on crime thing and and he sure. and he said he was supportive of of unions he he didn't campaign on destroying unions he simply did that as president but i could remember my grandfather i god bless him and i can remember him saying and i just remember this as a kid he's like he's like if this guy gets elected we're in big trouble and yeah. that's what he i could that stuck with me till today yeah. and i have people in my union right now die-hard Trump people, and it's just, it's, it's insane. You're voting against your own interests. It just doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy. <laughs> no, you can thank billionaire Rupert Murdoch for this. You've got the billionaire class running their own media operation. Billionaire Murdoch is running Fox. Other billionaires own some of the big radio networks that run right-wing hate radio in large form. Billionaires who are supporting websites. You've got billionaires supporting right-wing hosts, as I mentioned earlier. And there's no analog of that on the left. There's no structure on the left supported by any billionaire that I know of. The right-wing billionaires hate unions because most of them, you know, many of them made their money, about half of them made their money through inheritance, but a lot of them made their money with manufacturing companies and they don't want unionized work. I should, I should be clear, you know, I'm talking about right-wing billionaires. There are some left-wing billionaires and God bless them. We'll no doubt continue that conversation as we go through the program. But right now, Dr. Richard Wolf is with us, our old friend, the economist, the co-founder of Democracy at Work, the author most recently of Capitalism's Crisis Deepens, essays on the global economic meltdown, his website, democracyatwork.info. You can tweet him at Prof Wolf, P-R-O-F-W-O-L-F-F, Dr. Wolf. Welcome back. Thanks, Tom. Glad to be here. It is always great having you with us on the program. Venezuela, I wanted to talk about Venezuela and hyperinflation and kind of tie it into the discussion of the Green New Deal and how Republicans are saying that that would lead to hyperinflation here in the United States. They're saying, hey, if you want to spend a couple trillion dollars doing something really cool, the government's going to have to print money and you're going to end up looking just like Venezuela. You're going to have hyperinflation. You want to have Venezuela do the Green New Deal. That's, That's what these socialists are trying to bring to you. But my recollection 
and please educate me about this. You're the professor of economics. My recollection during the 1970s, when the Arabs cut off our oil supply and we saw inflation, you know, really just go through the roof. It wasn't hyperinflation, but I bought a house with a 13% mortgage. <laughs> you know, I remember that well. And, yeah. and, and I think they got as high as 18% at one point that what we learned or what I learned then was that inflation was not caused by the government printing too much money. It was caused by a lack of a commodity that is essential to the country, in this case, oil. And what I understand is going on in Venezuela is the commodity that they are lacking that's essential to that country right now is American dollars. And is that true? And can you explain that? And am I making sense here or way out in left field? No, no, you're making perfect sense. You know, there's something absurd in, in these kinds of arguments. Uh, hyperinflation simply means that prices are going up quickly. And if prices are going up quickly, it's usually a sign of a certain imbalance. Either there's more money chasing after insufficient numbers of goods, or there's not more money, but there's a drop in the availability of goods so that the competing People uh, wanting to get the scarce goods bid up the price because that's how markets work. If there's more people who want something than there is of that something, the people start bidding against each other, driving up the price. So in the case of Venezuela, they have a set of conditions that produces an excess of money on the one hand and a diminution of goods and services on the other. So you get a very rapid inflation. Other countries have had that, countries that have nothing to do with socialism. It's really not relevant to that. It can happen in a socialist country, but it typically has happened much more often in capitalist countries when those conditions occur. The argument that you can't have a new deal, green or otherwise, because the government will spend money to do it, and therefore we'll have an inflation, the best way to answer that, since it is stone-cold wrong and silly, is to remind people that the Green New Deal is a play on the term New Deal. And in the 1930s, we had a New Deal in which the government spent an enormous amount of money putting 15 million people to work, paying their salaries, creating Social Security, which gave millions more money every month, creating unemployment compensation, none of which had existed before, pumping more money into the economy. Did we have the inflation that these worry warts want us to think about? No. Prices fell in the 1930s. Not only didn't they go up quickly, didn't go up at all, they went down. And so the reality was putting all those people to work, produced the goods and services so that the money the government spent was easily used up to buy those things, not only at no rising price, but actually the things were produced in such quantities that the prices went down, even though the government was spending more money. So in order to answer these kinds of questions, you have to stop doing the kind of ideological quackery that you hear about this. The people who are against the Green New Deal don't want the government to be doing the things that they would prefer to make private profit on. The rest of it is a lot of BS to prevent that, to keep their privileges, to keep the very system that produced the inequality you were talking about before we began uh, conversing. Beyond that, it, economics-wise, it's silly.
I see this a lot on television. I see it even on, on yep. uh, television networks uh, where the hosts uh, uh, appear to be kind of leaning left, like, uh, you know, MSNBC and some of the shows on CNN, where, uh, oh, yeah, you know, AOC is great and Bernie is great, but, you know, we really can't afford that. And I'm hearing this now from presidential candidates, in fact. Several of them have come forward and said, no, you know, Green New Deal, no, I can't, you know, uh, Medicare for all, we can't afford that. Education for all, we can't afford that. And, and I can't banging my head against the wall, particularly when I hear Democratic senators saying this kind of crap, for, forgive the word, because yes. my recollection, and again, please fact check me on this, is that during the GI Bill in the 1950s, 60s, and early 70s, for every dollar that we spent educating young men and women who came back from World War II, college educations, we got an additional $7 in government income that is tax revenue that we wouldn't have otherwise gotten because they had higher incomes, and so they paid higher tax rates. When Eisenhower borrowed money to build the interstate highway system, it produced way more in tax revenues than it cost us. That these things are actually revenue generators. And the same thing with having a healthy populace. If everybody had health care and we took the 20% bloodsuckers, you know, the health insurance companies out of the equation, we would save money and, and we'd have a healthier populace. How can anybody, including a Democrat, make the argument that we can't afford to give everybody college education, that we can't afford to have a national health care system, when in fact that we can't afford to have a Green New Deal, you know, new infrastructure, green new infrastructure, when in fact every single time in the past that we have done these things or things like these things, they have actually generated more wealth than they have cost. It's 50 years of endless propaganda to make all of this seem reasonable, sadly, even to the uh, middle of the road or even slightly left of center Democrats who have, uh, you know, drunk the Kool-Aid and imagine that this sort of thing is what you have to say and, and what you have to uh, kind of believe. But here's the silliness with the taxes. You're absolutely right. The top tax rates on really wealthy people were between 70 and 95 percent for much of the 1950s, 60s, and into the 70s. And that's one of the reasons why, when your government spent money and put people to work or built the highways or built the, you know, the interstates and so forth, the money that was generated, the jobs that were generated, pumped a lot of money into the federal government so you didn't have these kinds of problems. So it's bizarre to say we can't afford something at the end of a 40-year period when you have cut taxes on corporations vastly and you've cut taxes on the richest 10 or 20 percent of the people enormously. That's the reason we quote-unquote can't afford it. Of course we can afford it, just like we once did afford it, but that would require jacking up the tax rates on the rich. And that's the real issue here. They don't want to do that. So they invent these other arguments because they haven't the courage or the honesty to say, honestly, I don't want to pay any more taxes and I'm going to do everything I can to prevent it. If I could go back and one more point about Venezuela, please. A nearby country like Venezuela, a socialist country, Bolivia, run by a leader who calls his country and himself a socialist a man by the name of Evo Morales, who's roughly the equivalent in Bolivia of what Maduro is in Venezuela. They're both socialist countries. Is there a runaway inflation in Bolivia? Not at all. Are people leaving Bolivia for another country? Not at all. Bolivia had one of the fastest growth rates over the last few years of any country in Latin America. 
the point is not that socialism is always good or always successful. That would be silly. But it is just as silly to imagine that you can pick a country that is having a lot of difficulties for a whole host of reasons, happens to be socialist, and therefore allows everyone from Mr. Trump on down to carry out one of the dumbest moves any student ever had to be reprimanded for, which is don't make an entire case about a system dependent on one example that you happen to choose. That's not honest you know, that, that's really a kind of flim-flam economics, not a serious approach uh, to what's going on. Yeah, well, flim-flam and Trump, I mean, you know, shouldn't surprise <laughs> us, I suppose. Um, no. So what would you say is the biggest lesson of Venezuela? We had Greg Palace on the show last week. He used to report from Venezuela about Venezuela for the BBC, like, you know, a decade ago. And right. he pointed out that the Maduro government and you and he had he sent pictures right the entire the cabinet and uh, all the members of congress of his party they were all people of color and then you look at a picture of guido or whatever his name is the speaker of the house that trump wants to be president and you look at all the members of his party and there was like 200 of them in this picture they were all white european ancestry all of them right and right. greg was making the point that the reason that we have singled out venezuela is twofold number one we want their oil uh, the same reason we went after iraq you know the old dick cheney thing and number two right. you've got a government in a, in a majority people of color nation that is a majority persons of color government and that right. that was intolerable to trump and the white supremacists we have a little less than a minute your thoughts on those things yeah, I mean, the United States, it's again a little bit like the earlier argument. The United States has tried to get rid of Chavez. That failed. And it went to work for the last 20 years trying to undo that government with trade sanctions, military interventions, freezing their assets, number one. Number two, you have that minority sitting at the top of Venezuelan society, rich white, etc., that doesn't want to lose its century and a half of special privileges sitting on top of a very poor country. Then you have an, a revolutionary effort, Chavez and now Maduro, trying to undo that. They have two enemies, the hardcore who controlled industry and banks inside their country, that white ruling class, and the Americans as their allies. That's a hard road to hold, and a lot of their problems come out of that confrontation. Brilliant. Brilliant, as always. Dr. Richard Wolf, thank you so much for being with us, uh, Professor. Thank you, Glad to talk with you. Oh, great talking with you. Democracyatwork.info is his website. R.D. Wolf, also with two Fs.com. And you can tweet him at ProfWolf, P-R-O-F-W-O-L-F-F. My friends at X-Chair are at it again, constantly tinkering to make an already superior product even better so you can work in even more comfort and be that much more productive. Now you can enhance your X-Chair's performance and protect your floors with incredible X-Wheel blade casters. These urethane wheels are driven by butter-smooth, whisper-quiet ball bearings and are built to last. As if the X-Chair isn't comfortable enough, now you can add a set of X-Wheels and take your performance to the next level. Take advantage of X-Chair's new financing option and pay as little as $30 a month. Seriously, for less than the cost of a daily 
cup of coffee, you can take your comfort and productivity into the stratosphere by getting yourself an X chair. X chair is on sale now for $100 off. Just go to xchairtom.com now. That's xchairtom.com or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR. X chair comes with a 30-day, no questions asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code TOM for a free footrest. That's xchairtom.com, xchairtom.com. Let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's up in the world today. On the line with us is Luke Vargas, the chief foreign correspondent for Talk Media News, joining us from UN headquarters in New York. Luke, I understand that Trump and Kim are meeting in Hanoi. A, what's the latest going on there? And B, why would the president of the United States agree to meet a communist dictator in another communist country? Isn't, isn't that Trump and, giving in to Kim? Yeah, well, and, and look at the way that Kim's interests, I think, are being catered to in Vietnam in a way they weren't in Singapore, which I think is a country with a lot more experience serving as a sort of bona fide intermediary between adversarial states. Vietnam has seemed to be pretty pliant when it comes to acceding to North Korean whims. I mean, the, the one example I'm just getting a, hundreds of updates about from my colleagues kicking and, the reporters and who were all there is kicking the reporters out of the hotel. I mean, you yeah. really had a case where you think the Vietnamese would have realized this was going to be a problem. And I have to say, it's not clear we can really absolve the U.S. for maybe not anticipating that the North Koreans would have a problem with hundreds of American reporters being in hotel rooms below and above Kim Jong-un's suite. And that seems like a huge oversight in planning. But it is, uh, I think, pretty telling that they, you know, basically gave a pretty undignified boot to a major press operation. And I know there's not a whole lot of sympathy to go around for some of these journalists, but it is a real inconvenience for both Fox and for MSNBC to have to tear down all their studios and rebuild their setup the day before this summit. Let's put that aside, though. I mean, I think what, what we're learning is there is sort of a framework for a deal in place there's what we've been told is sort of an uptick in optimism on the American side that some deal can be reached. I will caveat this by saying I think the reason to be optimistic, one way to get there is actually to have a, a good deal in place. The other way is just to lower expectations so far that suddenly everything looks like it's good. And, and I'm, I'm of sort of mixed minds. It looks like the deal that we, we may get tomorrow would involve North Korea agreeing to destroy one or two of its nuclear facilities or, or just put it out of commission, basically. The, the one that's getting talked about is called the Yongbyon research center. It's, it's the site of North Korea's first nuclear reactor and sort of one of the big areas where that kind of enrichment uh, behavior has been occurring for many years. They're going to return some more war remains, which is such a footnote that I don't even think it, we should pay attention to that. When Except Trump talks the, about it ad, ad nauseum. <laughs> of like, course. Like but I, that, that, they're going to throw that in there. Yeah. The U.S., it sounds like, is going to relax some sanctions, not the international ones, but some of our domestic sanctions that prohibit North Korea, South Korea economic investments. And I think that's noteworthy. Oh, interesting. Uh, North Korea has apparently stopped demanding quite as vocally as they used to about the pain of international sanctions. And one of the reasons I think they don't need to do that is they've been able to work out pretty good deals with both China and Russia in the last few months to continue to import various things that they need to get, you know, Russia's volunteered to operate a nuclear plant in North Korea down the road. The Chinese are, are being quite cooperative at many different levels. But, and, and so that's sort of it's convenient for the North Koreans because if, if they were to ask the U.S. to lead all these countries in just taking down the whole sanctions regime, that's going to put the U.S. in a tough position. But all they're actually asking for now is, hey, 
clear out some of the diplomatic uh, hurdles that make it difficult for us to, let's say, build a rail line between Seoul and Pyongyang or to build economic corridors or roads and things like that, which both of these countries really want to do. Or so, for South Korean companies to build factories in North Korea, so, sort of like GM building factories in Mexico where the labor is cheaper? Exactly right. Now, the, the real question there comes, does the U.S. do this in a way that allows the Chinese to profit in the same way as it does the South Korean? That's the one sort of pressure that we can't quite anticipate. If, you know, if, if Trump says, hey, like, we're going to allow it to be open season for South Korea to do business here, does China start squealing and scuttle this deal because they wanted to have, you know, first dibs as well? So that's something to watch. But anyways, those are the big elements of the deal. Maybe we can now take some constructive steps to get denuclearization. But I don't think you're going to hear that word really cool. at all tomorrow. That yeah. used to be what we were all going to Hanoi to talk about. That seems to have really slipped off the agenda in recent days. No doubt. And in our last five seconds, Nikki Haley? Sure. Yeah, she's both created a think tank or an advocacy group to champion a more aggressive American foreign policy and been offered a seat on the board of Boeing, the uh, major defense contractor. Uh -oh. so that's, a, that's a fun next chapter for her and a Which profitable one, probably. Probably has a very large paycheck associated with it. Amazing. $315,000 a year at minimum, we are told. Yeah, nothing to sneeze at. Luke Vargas, thank you, Luke. Thank you. TalkMediaNews.com, much appreciated. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Bill in St. Helens, Oregon. Hey, Bill, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, uh, retired Coast Guard lieutenant. I don't do any of those bad things. Anyway, okay. <laughs> good on you, Bill. Um, one, uh, one of my, uh, yeah. one of my, uh, I, I, I don't want to say best friend, best acquaintances when I lived in Washington D.C. A good guy. We got to know him fairly well. Was a Coast Guard officer and. Just a sweet guy. Some of the best people I've met in the military are Coast Guard people. Anyhow, what's up, Bill? So, okay, and I've been saying this for quite a while now. So the founders established the Constitution. They had three branches. They vested very specific powers in each branch. And it always seemed to me totally common sense that the founders didn't give the authority to revest those powers. And in reality, apparently they felt this was so important that the only place in the Constitution that they actually give the Congress the power to vest the power, their power in lower authority is Article 2, Section 2, Appointment of Officers. So having said that, I did a little research, and the nation came out with a nice uh, article the other day, and they actually nailed the right words. The non-delegation doctrine, and a non-delegation doctrine is a principle that the Congress cannot delegate its legislative powers to other entities. Right. And in Schlechter Poultry Corp. versus United States in 1935, the Supreme Court held that Congress is not permitted to abdicate or to transfer to others the essential legislative functions with which it is thus vested. So, Trump that, really has. Wouldn't that include war-making power, Bill? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Trump, well, all powers. It's, you know, I tell people, I said, Trump does not have the authority to, any, any president does not have the authority to initiate a war. We, it's a whole different subject what to do if we're being attacked. But right. they have no, no authority to, to, this is my opinion, but I think. Well, even Franklin Roosevelt sought a resolution from Congress after Pearl Harbor. Yeah. So Congress can't delegate tariff authority to the president, so he has no tariff authority. Congress cannot delegate immigration authority to the president, so he has no immigration authority. Congress cannot delegate war powers. No, I mean, well, hang on just a second, Bill. Let's, let's be real clear in our language. They can't delegate to him the authority to define the law. What they do delegate to him by virtue of writing the laws is the authority to execute those laws. 
Oh, absolutely. If the Congress passes a, uh, the Congress passes a resolution, law, whatever, saying, "Hey, we can go to war with some X country X." Right. No, I'm yeah, talking about your. I'm I'm responding to your last one, which was immigration. You know, they've they've passed specific laws. He can execute those laws, but he can't go well, beyond the what the is, laws are. No, what they did is they passed a specific law, and I'm, I'm not sure the date, 50. They passed a specific law basically totally punting on all immigration authority and giving it to him. They, they didn't say, hey, this and that. They literally, when you totally transfer your powers versus the law, you have now violated the So you think this should go to the Supreme document. Court, in other words? Oh, this should, no, this should have been worse than that. This should have been a constitutional amendment. You want to give that kind of power? Oh, let's take, the, let's take this current emergency declaration fiasco going on. All right. Here we have the legislative branch actually creating special and very poorly defined powers for the executive branch. Where in right. the Constitution does it say one branch gets to create powers for another branch? Yeah. It really doesn't. So yeah, it, it, I'd, I'd love to know a little bit more about the history of that. Wasn't that 79 that that happened? Oh, I, I looked up all the dates. I don't have them in front of me. Yeah, I don't recall, but I'm wondering if that was right after the hostages were taken in Iran or something like that. I, I just don't know. Yeah. I'd have to look it up. But this should be the discussion. Um, this should be the discussion. This should be the national discussion. Yeah, yeah, it should be. Let's let's go back to a, to actual constitutional authority. Thank you, Bill. I've been telling you how much I love Harry's products for years. I won't shave with anything else. Their close shave and smooth, comfortable glide is amazing. And Harry's delivers right to your door at a price your wallet will love, too. Harry's doesn't do gimmicks. You know, no vibrating heads, flex balls, or handles that look like spaceships. Who needs that stuff? Harry's gives you a simple, clean design with quality, durable blades, all at a fair price. Replacement cartridges are just $2 each half the price of Gillette Fusion Pro Shield. And Harry's Blades come with a 100% money-back guarantee. Love your shave or get a full refund. For a limited time only, Harry's has a special offer for listeners of the Tom Hartman program. New customers get $5 off a trial set from Harry's with the code TOM, T-H-O-M, at harrys.com. That means you get a razor, weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and travel cover, all for just 3 bucks, plus free shipping when you use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, at harrys.com. Go to harrys.com today and use the code TOM to claim your offer and let them know I sent you to help support the show. That's harrys.com, code TOM. Mark in Max Creek, Missouri. Hey, Mark, what's on your mind? Thanks for watching us on YouTube. Uh, what's up? If we were looking to pay for, like, med Medicare for all, uh, why couldn't they do that in, like, a sales tax? You know, like if everything from bubble gum to a yacht, that way everybody's paying their fair share, you know, whether it be, like, you know, nickel on a dollar, ten cents on a dollar, you know, if yeah. you're eating the uh, romaine noodles all week or whatever. There's a, there's a, two answers to that, Mac. A, sales taxes are typically the most regressive of all taxes because they hit even people who are in absolute and utter poverty. They still have to pay sales taxes. So if you're raising right. the, the cost of retail goods right across the board and you're not raising wages or welfare benefits or whatever it may be, how, however people are able to survive, you know, hang on by their teeth, Social Security benefits, then you're really, you know, hurting the least among us. That said... There is a form of tax, which is not a sales tax, but it sort of functions as one in a way, which is how Canada does it. It's how all the countries of Europe do it. I believe it's how Mexico does it. It's how much of South America does it. And it's called a value-added tax. And what a VAT tax does is it imposes a very small tax on manufactured goods 
every time a product is increased in value. So when you mine the iron ore and convert it to pig iron, there's a very small tax on that increase in value. When you convert that pig iron to steel, there's a very small tax on that steel. When you convert that steel to rolled steel, there's a very small tax on that. When you convert the rolled steel into a car door, there's a small tax on that. When you put that car door on the car, there's a small tax on that. And it all adds up. And in, for example, in Germany, the VAT tax on automobiles is 17%. And then they use that VAT tax as a tariff and a reverse tariff to basically make it more difficult for things manufactured abroad to come into the country and to encourage companies in the country to manufacture things within the country. And uh, so, for example, if you want to take an American car and sell it in Germany, Germany is saying, hey, there's no VAT tax imposed on that car. That's not fair to German citizens who have to pay a VAT tax on you know, a BMW made in Germany. And so you're going to have to pay a 17% tax at the border when you bring that car into Germany. It's functionally a tariff, right? But it's called a VAT right. tax. And on the other hand, if Germany is going to export a car from Germany to the United States and sell it here in the United States, there's an immediate 17% discount because U.S. citizens don't pay German VAT taxes. And if you've ever traveled internationally, you've, you, you very often, Australia is really big on this, you buy things while you're there, you keep your receipts, and on the way out, there's a booth at the airport where you go up and you show them your receipts, and every single one shows how much VAT tax was in every product you bought, and they refund it to you because you're not an Australian. And so oh. that is a tax that I I think we should have in the United States that some would argue is a sales tax and is a slightly regressive tax. But I, most of the, up, right up until the very last stage of manufacturing, most of those costs of that VAT tax are actually not absorbed by the consumer, they're absorbed by the companies um, that are manufacturing the products. Make sense, Mark? Uh, yeah, nice. And, nice and all these countries use their VAT taxes to help fund their, their uh, Medicare for all. So, Mark, yeah. thank you for that one. Zach in North Hollywood, California, watching us on Free Speech TV. Zach, what's up? Morning, Tom. Uh, have you ever noticed that the word tax sounds like attack? Uh, yeah. I think we should change the term to patriotic contribution. Okay, except it's not a contribution. They put you in jail if you don't do it. Anyway, my main point, I just feel like... I, 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 the, the phrase I think we should use, Zach, is called, is, is paying your fair share. And, right. and well, that's the thought, you know, behind patriotic contribution. That, yeah. That's if you don't pay your tax, you're not a patriot. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. I just feel like these, this faction of worldwide billionaires and super elites are saying to the American people, the Mueller investigation, to the rest of the world, for that matter, We've been holding the purse strings for 240 years. We're not going to stop now, and except now we're doing it in the open, and no matter what kind of democratic principles you throw at us, we're going to find a way around it, because we've got the judges now. What yeah. do you think? Oh, that's absolutely the Republican strategy. This is why Mitch McConnell blocked uh, Barack Obama in the last two years of his presidency from appointing any, you know, uh, functionally any judges. I think he got two through. Why he blocked Merrick Garland from the Supreme Court for almost a year. And why he's talking now about even, you know, a, a second version of the nuclear option. Last Tuesday, he pushed through, a week ago Tuesday, he pushed through 44 federal judges in one day. I mean, on these, big news, on these big news days, the Republicans in the Senate are just holding these vote-a-thons. 
you know, last year of the Obama presidency, John Roberts, you know, the, the, the Republican appointee, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, the guy who, who counseled George Bush's legal staff on how to argue Bush v. Gore to get Bush in the White House in 2000. I mean, this was, this was the payoff that Bush gave him, was making him Chief Justice. In the, the last year of the Obama administration, John Roberts came out and said that Mitch McConnell, he didn't name him, but he said that the Senate was not doing their job and there was a judicial crisis in the United States because there weren't enough judges. And Mitch McConnell has said he thinks that the thing that history is going to remember him for are the judges. And I think that's true. I don't think it's going to remember him well, but I think it's true. Zach, you've identified their strategy. James in Brookfield, Illinois. Hey, James, what's up? Yeah, hi, Tom. I want to expand a little bit on your uh, one of your other callers who used the language of gun violence. I'm wondering, does it make sense to kind of try to rebrand or re-message instead of how they keep saying gun control is horrible? Well, what, well, what about gun safety? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, what about firearm safety? Or, or just putting the message in the sense of, that it's a positive thing that's going to help people and not we're trying to take stuff away from you. I, you're talking about messaging here. I think that at a certain level, that's a useful thing. On the other hand, the, putting the word gun and the word safety in the same sentence is a bit of an oxymoron. Um, yeah. If you just look at suicides, for example, the majority of gun deaths in the United States are suicides. Last year, I think it was around 28,000 suicides, which would have meant around 12,000 homicides. When you look at all attempts at suicide, only about 5% are successful by means other than guns. But when a gun is the means used to attempt suicide, you have over a 90% success rate. In fact, cool. you've, you've got to be fairly incompetent to try and kill yourself with a gun and not pull it off. Uh-huh. And so guns are devices that specifically were made to kill things, including people. Uh-huh. I mean, guns, weapons of war are specifically to kill people and other guns, you know, rifles and whatnot, to kill animals, right? hunting and, and uh-huh. uh, protection. I mean, I, I get the safe use of guns, but... I think that we just need to call it out for what it is. It's like calling out tobacco as, as, as poison that oh. kills people. I mean, it's how else can yeah, you do no, that? I, no, I mean, that, that's totally true. I guess my thought is if you look at how the right, the Republicans have relabeled, rebranded abortion in the sense of, you know, how it's safety for the women and how they need to keep the women safe and all that sort of stuff. And that's why they're doing all these things that basically control. I'm not hearing that from them, James, because the simple statistic is that pregnancy is more dangerous than abortion. You know, more people die or are are injured from pregnancy than are die or injured from abortion. They're framing it as the zygote or the ovum or the fetus or whatever stage of development it may be as being, you know, a full human being. Okay, Uh, but I kind of thought that they are imposing all these restrictions on abortion. Oh yeah, those phony baloney laws, the the aisles have to be a certain width, the doctors have to have admitting privileges. Yeah, they use safety, you're right, they do use safety as an excuse to create regulations for for abortion clinics that are very, very, very expensive to me. You're absolutely right, James. Interesting. James, I gotta run, I'm sorry, we're out of time. But thanks for the call, thanks for listening to WCPT. Thank you for being here with us today. Another fascinating day. We'll see tomorrow. Michael Cohen is going to be testifying in public. Today was private testimony. We may get something leaked out tonight. 
But tomorrow is going to be real fascinating. We'll be carrying all that and sharing it with you to the extent that we can. And uh, in the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 